Welcome to the April 2016 Respiratory Care Podcast. This is Dean Hess, editor of the journal. Our editor's choice paper investigates the effects of nasal cycling on FiO2 by nasal cannula in an anatomic model comparing right and left prong oxygen flow delivery. Marshall and colleagues found that oxygen delivery might be inefficient in the presence of nasal cycle. Delivered oxygen concentration decreased when bilateral nasal patency changes to unilateral nasal patency. Wettstein reminds us that bench studies do not predictably translate into clinical practice, but this study raises interesting questions requiring further research. Comini et al. evaluated the impact of clinical and quality-of-life outcomes of survivors with prolonged ICU stay that are recovering from rehabilitation on caregivers' burden. Although subjects' clinical status improved over time, caregivers' burden remained high, suggesting the need to monitor and support caregivers. Lang and Choi recommend that, to best understand how to intervene to assist in recovery, it is important to enroll both ICU survivors and family caregivers in future studies and investigate relationships between burden and recovery in both. An observational study was conducted by Maskell Robertson et al. to evaluate the objective use of pulse oximetry to predict respiratory support transition in preterm infants. Their hypothesis was that infants with greater than or equal to 15% of time spent with an oxygen saturation less than 86% prior to transitioning from CPAP or high-flow nasal cannula to low-flow nasal cannula, oxyhood, or room air, are more likely to fail transitioning. Their results suggest that SpO2 histograms may be useful in assessing support transition readiness. In their editorial, Mentz and Weitz suggest that frequent assessments of SpO2 measurements, including the percentage of time infants spend within their desired target SpO2 range and the number of prolonged hypoxemic events, could be a valuable strategy to adapt the intensity of therapeutic interventions. In another study of pulse oximetry, Amalcanti et al. assessed the performance of pulse oximetry in acute respiratory failure of subjects with COPD. They found that pulse oximetry performed poorly in comparison with arterial blood gas analysis. The variability of readings was greater in subjects with chronic bronchitis than those with emphysema. Ruiz and colleagues evaluated transcutaneous carbon dioxide in subjects with acute respiratory failure and severe hypercapnia. They found an overall acceptable agreement between transcutaneous PCO2 and arterial PCO2. However, transcutaneous PCO2 underestimated arterial PCO2 and was not suitable for subjects with severe hypercapnia. Tehran et al. assessed smoking-related behaviors and effectiveness of tobacco cessation therapy in prison. Factors like stress and being in prison may provoke smoking. A smoking ban did not seem to be a solution for preventing tobacco use in the prisons. Tobacco cessation programs may be a better option, and cost-free cessation medications may increase quit rates among prisoners. 
Bobake and colleagues tested whether finger plethysmography waveform change during a Valsalva maneuver could help the distinction between subjects with COPD exacerbation with and without left ventricular dysfunction. They found that an increased plethysmographic pulse amplitude ratio associated with COPD exacerbation is a good predictor of left ventricular dysfunction. The aim of the study by McCallum et al. was to describe the respiratory microbiology of children with long-term tracheostomy. Interestingly, specific organisms were not related to level of chronic respiratory support or likelihood of receiving antibiotics. Fierre and colleagues verified the effects of passive smoking on mucociliary clearance and the autonomic nervous system and investigated the influence of frequency and time of passive exposure on these systems. Passive smokers had worse mucociliary clearance and there was a correlation between passive exposure load and damage to the hemodynamic behavior, pulmonary function, and autonomic nervous system. The aim of the study by Carlucci et al. was to investigate the technical aspects that can influence the setting of the ventilator during mouthpiece ventilation and to give a practical setting to avoid alarm activation. They found that an appropriate alarm setting and combination of tidal volume and inspiratory time allowed the majority of the tested ventilators to be used for mouthpiece ventilation without alarm activation. Sarah Boley and Pazinato Forte developed predictive equations for maximum inspiratory pressures of women considering anthropometric characteristics. They suggest that predictive equations developed in this study can be used in the interpretation of the assessment of respiratory muscle strength in morbidly obese women between ages of 25 and 65 years. Lee et al. evaluated the clinical utility of additional measurement of total lung capacity in diagnosing obstructive lung disease in subjects with a restrictive pattern of spirometry. They found that the additional measurement of total lung capacity was more useful than FEF 25 to 75, peak inspiratory flow, and post-bronchodilator response for diagnosis of obstructive lung disease in subjects with restrictive pattern of spirometry when obstructive lung disease is clinically suspected. The study of Caradol and colleagues investigated the effects of inspiratory muscle training in subjects with sarcoidosis. Inspiratory muscle training improved functional and maximal exercise capacity and respiratory muscle strength decreased severe fatigue and dyspnea perception in subjects with early stage sarcoidosis. In the study by Bellani and colleagues, the authors describe an index, PEI, defined as the ratio between the inspiratory muscle pressure and the electrical activity of the diaphragm. They found that PEI remained constant in each subject over time, although the inter-individual variability was high. Neither the PEI nor its trends appeared to be associated with ventilatory variables or clinical outcome. 
Bullock et al. evaluated the relationship of circulating C5A and complement factor H levels with disease control in pregnant subjects with asthma. They found that asthma during pregnancy increased the circulating level of pro-inflammatory C5A, which is accompanied by impaired lung function and partly counteracted by the gestation-specific elevation of regulatory CFH level. The aim of the study by Smith et al. was to investigate clinical and quantitative measures of balance in people with chronic respiratory disease following participation in an outpatient pulmonary rehabilitation program. Participation in an eight-week outpatient pulmonary rehabilitation program improved balance as assessed by clinical and laboratory measures. Detailed analysis of force-place measures demonstrated improvements primarily with respect to medial lateral balance control. Rattori and colleagues aimed to develop a method to accurately monitor ventilation with respiratory inductive plethysmography in subjects with high body mass index during a six-minute walk test. They found that this respiratory monitoring method is sufficiently sensitive to indicate differences between rest and exercise, as well as locomotor and ventilatory differences relative to BMI during the six-minute walk test. This month, we publish a review on high-flow nasal cannula and another on ultrasonic assessment of diaphragm function. We also publish two year-in-review papers, one on asthma and the other on neonatal respiratory care. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.